0: Hello boys and girls, welcome to this episode of Seeking Satya Podcast. Today my guest is uh, Akshay Bahadwaj. Akshay is a Michelin star executive chef. He's been featured on Forbes 30 under 30. Following a stint at Junoon Dubai, he returned to Junoon in New York City to become a sous chef. Along the way, he learned French, Italian and Japanese culinary techniques working under various chefs, which he applies at Junoon to help push the boundaries of Indian cuisine. He was promoted to the executive chef in 2016. Akshay's cooking has a strong emotional component rooted in childhood fond memories and how they made him feel. In October 2019, Junoon was awarded a Michelin star for the ninth year in a row. Junoon now holds the title of the only Indian restaurant in New York City with a Michelin star. And he's one of the youngest Indian chefs to be recognized for this coveted award. Akshay visits India regularly where he enjoys his grandmother's cooking. Akshay, thanks for coming on the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate it.
0: Awesome. You were um, born in Queens, uh, growing up in New Jersey. How was it like growing up?
1: Growing up in Queens, I have an older brother and my mom and my father who were also in the restaurant industry. And when I was seven years old, I moved to New Jersey where I've lived ever since. So I kind of, uh, yeah, it was, it, was, it was an interesting childhood kind of moving from uh, living in a small apartment with uh, two bedrooms and a bunk bed and one bathroom that we all shared to finding a little bit of success. My father was able to you know, start uh, a restaurant and he saw you know, a great deal of success in 1997 and expanded the company. And in 2001, we moved to New Jersey where, you know, I got to, you know, study in some better schools and whatnot. And, you know, eventually went to Fordham and then kind of, uh, ended up changing course and finding my way into the kitchen, which was definitely not planned when I was younger.
0: Any fond memories from, uh, Either from your parents or your grandmother, growing up, do you do you recall any specific foods or anything that sort of uh, takes you back?
1: Yeah, I I would I would first and foremost say that I was uh, the first child born in America on either side of the family. So my older brother, he was born in India two years after my parents got married they had an arranged marriage and when my parents came to America in 1990 my brother was three years old I was born three years later so I was the prototypical you know American child where when my grandparents would come and visit my grandmother could only speak in Hindi and I could only speak in English Uh, I wasn't too fond of uh, Indian culture didn't really go and see Bollywood movies, uh, didn't really, you know, uh, spend time, you know, with the family whenever, you know, they go to the cinema or go to a show in Atlantic City to watch, you know, Amitabh Bachchan or one of these guys. So it was, it was definitely, I was definitely the odd man out. My brother could speak fluent Hindi. He grew up on Bell Chavel. Uh, mm-hmm. but my mom did instill in me. Uh, eating Indian cuisine on a day and and day out basis, she would cook six days a week or seven days a week, mostly veg- vegetarian meals. So I would eat in a in a big steel tali, a different subzi almost every day. So we're talking alu gobi, matar paneer, ghiya, tinde and tori, uh you know, bindi, you name it, and I ate it uh, with you know, and roti, stava roti that my mother would make from and she made everything from scratch. So it's actually funny, we make this joke nowadays that I used to actually get very cranky when my parents would order outside food, if they're ordering Chinese food or pizza or, you know, Burger King, whatever it was, I used to really get offended. like, why are we eating this when I'm, you know, in love with eating dal roti sensi? So it's kind of funny because most kids, if you if you see the, and it's unfortunate, but in Indian culture as well as probably other cultures, the kids in uh, that grew up here in America are more used to eating outside food. Whether it's because both the parents are working, or whatever the case is, they don't have time to prepare the meals. It is a long process, a few hours. You know, if you're making everything from scratch like my mother used to so I guess it's kind of interesting that I grew up in that time and so much has changed in the last 15 or 20 years and especially in the last decade I went from not being able to speak a lick of Hindi to now I am fluent in Hindi and speak better Hindi than my brother (laughs) Uh, because I work in an Indian kitchen and you know I was forced to do that so uh, you know there's definitely a lot of fond memories uh, every time we used to go to India, I was very lucky. Uh, that in the 2000s, when I was 10 years old, 11 years old, you know, throughout, uh, high school, we would go in uh, the winter time during winter vacation. So, two weeks in yep. December, we would take a trip, and we would go and stay at, you know, my paternal grandfather's house, and while we were there, my grandmother, uh, both my mom and father side would cook, you know, 24 seven breakfast, lunch and dinner, we would go and eat out anyway, but (laughs) we were still eating at home multiple times a day. So it was always great to see kind of the culture and the difference in India versus America, you know, one of the one of the biggest differences, I would say is the produce in India, Mm -hmm. the vegetables, Mm -hmm. when I, I, I was shocked to see that You wake up in the morning in New Delhi, and you hear uh, gentlemen screaming uh, from the street, yelling, you know, go Bivala, go B, (laughs) go B, you know, like things like that, just yelling, yelling the the produce of the day, the vegetables that he has Mm -hmm. on his cart, as he's pulling the cart down the street, and people just, you know, go outside their house, will yell for the guy to come over and, you know, pick out whatever, veggies that they want and they'll cook with that so the concept of going to the grocery store going to the farmer's market isn't as crucial as as it is here so it it was definitely interesting we also have the running joke that my grandmother is so old school she was born I guess in you know 1930 1938 1939 so she has to there was no concept of microwave so she When I say she has to eat something hot or drink something hot, when she makes chai or she's making a roti, if or pranta, if Mm -hmm. you do not eat it within the first five seconds to ten seconds, that is like slapping her in the face. Oh my god! (laughs) Just because that's how she's used to it. She she is not, you know. My mother always, uh, you know, laughs about it because she's still to this day to forcefully drink her a cup of chai within like you know the snap of a finger in two seconds or else you know the grand my grandmother will start you know making faces and and kind of you know <laughs> bitching at my mom pardon my french but it, so it's uh it, there's, there's definitely a lot of that it's been it was definitely very interesting growing up and seeing kind of the differences between the american lifestyle and the indian lifestyle whenever i went back home
0: that's just that's a phenomenal story i mean, like. The couple of things that you mentioned, like the, the fresh produce, for example, the guy yelling out, you know, the produce of the day. I mean, I think the freshness is a key part of, I guess, at least Indian cooking and culture. And that's just, um, you, you can't even imagine that, right? In some parts of the world where there's no fresh produce, you just go get the stuff from freezer section or something. <laughs> <laughs> um, Absolutely, but-
1: yeah. And, uh, and, the, and the other thing, the other crazy thing is, even at our restaurant, there's days when I get frustrated because I'm trying to replicate something out of memory, something, an emotion that I have felt when I ate something. It'll be something as simple as just a pranta that has a stuffing inside of it. And all the components call for is yogurt on the side and butter smeared on top yet because my grandmother makes her yogurt from scratch in her house and the butter is also you know, such, such good quality that her food is, is superior, quite frankly, to anything that I can try to replicate in a kitchen in New York City.
0: On the note of your mom's yeah. cooking and your grandmother's cooking, I did notice that you, you have something called mass rice pudding Uh, that's part of your menu, I think, at Junoon, is it right?
1: Yes. So it actually is as advertised. My mother really does come to the restaurant and she really does make the rice pudding. So there is no, I make it or my pastry chef makes it and we just put a spin on it and put her name on it. Uh, The New York Post actually did an article on us because they were so blown away by the concept of a chef's mother coming in and and preparing a dish that's on the menu and is loved by so many people. Uh, The backstory kind of behind that was that growing up, growing up in Queens and then growing up in New Jersey, I used to hang out with my friends after school and all of my friends were either Jewish or Asian Americans, you know, Korean or and whatnot. Uh, I had very few Indian friends there were only probably two or three Indian kids in my grade, actually. So with that being said, they, were in, they had never tried Indian cuisine in their life. And it was a totally foreign kind of concept, watching us eat with our hands and, and the, whole, the whole experience. So it took them a while to gradually warm up to actually trying my mom's food because we used to spend a lot of time at my home Uh, you know, we had uh, a backyard that was perfect for football and perfect for soccer and baseball. It was nice and long and length. So we used to usually just play sports in the backyard and then come inside and uh, grab our water, Gatorade and whatnot. So my mom would be cooking and she would always offer them food. They would always say no. And then finally, after a few years, you know, they warmed up to it. They ate a roti. They fell in love with that. Then they ate Chole pu- uh, puri chole, they fell in love with that. Chicken curry, fell in love with that. So it just gradually became a thing where my mom always just knew that, hey, Aksha's friends are coming over. I better make some extra rotis. I better make extra channa, you know, uh, extra whatever. <laughs> so rice pudding was definitely a thing that she would make whenever we used to have pujas at her house, yep. which would be on a Sunday, which would be like Ashtami or, or one of those, you know, a hall, uh, one of puri, those festivals. Yeah. Yep. So every time we would do that, my mother would invite, yeah, she'd invite her friends, uh, our family friends, and they had kids and whatnot. And I would invite my friends and we would play in the backyard. And then around three o'clock, four o'clock in the afternoon, we would come inside on a Sunday and do puja. They would participate, my friends, the you know, all, all my friends would participate and they would eat the full meal, whatever it was. And rice pudding was definitely one of their favorites. There was no doubt about it. Everybody fell in love with it. Everyone used to go crazy about it. Essentially the same thing happened when I started working at Janoon. My mother started picking me up from school, uh, school, not school, picking me up from work in Janoon. <laughs> and once in a while when there was a puja or something, she would bring rice pudding, give it to the staff. She would tell me to do it and I would. And the staff would always go crazy about it. And even though we had rice pudding on the menu already from a pastry chef, oh. the whole staff would gravitate towards this rice pudding. They would be sneaking it in quart containers and to-go boxes. You would just see stashes of rice pudding all throughout the mm-hmm. kitchen. It actually became a rule that I would hand it out in a bowl to each person because I couldn't just leave it out there for people because some guy would it's end a, up yeah, taking like the whole thing. A huge... <laughs> Uh, you know, two, three, yeah, a huge bucket of it. Basically, yeah, that's exactly what happened. So it was, it was just something that everyone loved. And finally, in 2016 or so, we kind of came up with the idea when I took over as head chef and my pastry chef that I hired joined the staff. Uh, you know, we discussed the menu moving forward. And one of those ideas was, hey, what about your mother's pudding? What if we, you know, what if we realistically put that on the menu, and it'll make our lives easier? It's great in flavor, and you know, maybe she'll like like it. And she loved the idea. She likes that. She loved hanging out in the kitchen. Loved to, you know, kind of watch me work and, and whatnot. So it just worked perfectly. And yeah, it's been on the menu ever since.
0: Wow. You also mentioned something about your early childhood. Your dad starting Cafe Spice. Uh, Do you recall anything specific, any particular memories stick with you uh, during those days, you know, going from that like two bedroom apartment with, you know, you mentioned about the shared bathroom and very, you know, down to beginnings and then uh, starting this um, cafe spice restaurants, I would think. And how how did, I mean, did you as a child learn some things from that 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 influenced you?
1: Yeah, I would, I would definitely say two words that I, I learned at a very young age. And those two words would be work ethic. I would, I would say my father, when I was four years old, five years old, he put in so much work. I'm talking from morning when we go, went to school, he was getting up and getting ready for work, which was 7 a.m. And most nights he would not be back before midnight, no chance. Uh, I never, uh, I thought it was that, oh, well, dad's probably hanging out at the bar, having a drink and just hanging out, you know, uh, how difficult can his job be? Every time I go to the restaurant, you know, he joins us for dinner. So he's probably just every night eating dinner, sitting and whatnot. And it only, you know, did I realize 13, four, 15 years after the fact, when I actually started having to work and I had to book tell rooms to sleep next door to the restaurant because I had to wake up so early and I was sleeping so late that I realized that, damn, you know, there's there's some serious work that he had to put in to see his vision actually come to fruition. Because this industry, I'm sure you see the stats and you know the stats, uh, they might say 6% are profitable or whatever. I think realistically 99% of restaurants are doomed from the start. You're essentially opening a restaurant to shut it down. And that's, it's unfortunate, but it's, it's the truth. And I think we've definitely seen this past year with the pandemic, exactly how, how fragile of a system this industry is. So for my father to be able to have this vision uh, him and his partner were able to you know build it and since day one of the restaurants they were packed every night and uh, you know they expanded so I definitely saw just how much work he had to put in and I remember just the smell of like him being very sweaty yeah. like I will never forget like it smelled like just you know he was cooking in the kitchen also he was he was a trained chef so he would Sometimes you know, be, he was training this this other staff and showing them how some of the curries or the gravies or the marinations were to be made, and you could smell it on him. Really, you would I, I could smell like raw meat, like you know this this hmm. odor. And I you know it sounds like I'm talking trash about him, you know that he doesn't have hygiene, <laughs> but it was just that he was working so hard, he right. would come home and crash and sleep. And I remember on my Sixth birthday, I think it was that it was November, Thanksgiving weekend is always where my birthday is. So I was getting ready for school. I was in the second grade or first grade. And my mom, you know, I, I came into my parents' room. My mom like tapped my dad on the shoulders, like, hey, you know, it's actually his birthday. Like he knew, but he was passed out sleeping. Yep. So without really like turning around and wishing me or anything he like went under his futon because they had had a futon up like a bed bed so it was like on the floor basically like a mattress with the wood and you know the wooden planks so he just reached kind of like under under him and pulled out a razor scooter and handed it to me so he handed me his birth my birthday present to me and he just went right back to sleep and i was very (laughs) happy i got my razor scooter i was thrilled it had orange wheels i still remember but i just remember that he was so exhausted that there was no real emotion there. There was just kind of like handing it to me and go back to sleep because he had to go back and work another 14 hours, 16 hours. So that's something I'll never forget.
0: You certainly probably missed uh, some of the time uh, as he was working hard uh, for such long hours. But at the same time, it gave you some sense of what it takes to uh, achieve that kind of excellence. And that's, that's yeah, amazing. Uh, I also think that uh, as a child, you learned piano for like 12, 13 years. Is that right?
1: I was going to say, basically, the one thing I really, really despised playing the piano growing (laughs) up. I used to hate taking lessons. My mom used to sign me up for every single activity you could think of. Swimming lessons, taekwondo lessons, piano lessons. Uh, baseball, basketball, all these sports. Uh, I'm talking like middle school, third grade, fourth grade, whatever. Piano, I started in kindergarten. And I used to always fight her on all of these things. But now, as a 27 year old, I can firmly say that I'm so, so thankful that she was forcing me to do these activities because half of them I actually ended up loving. Like, I like, play. I'm, I'm proud that I can play the piano now. I can play Mozart, Beethoven. It, it's great. It's a great skill to have and sports I fell in love with eventually. So mm-hmm. I ended up really liking a lot of those things, but I would have never on my own wanted to try, try any of those things. So if I can give a tip to any young parent, I would say just make
0: <laughs> yeah,
1: to do everything. They might hate you, but they'll find something that they love because of it. Probably. so.
0: When you say now you definitely look back and appreciate it. Do you see some of that, um, applying to what you do today?
1: Yeah, I think that's a, that's a great question. I, I think with the piano, there's so much repetition that you need mm. to continuously practice. And you need to have a great fundamental base. My piano teacher, he was from China, but he played for the German orchestra. And he was super gifted. And unlike other kids that were my age, he used to force me to do sight reading, which was read the notes and play instead of memorizing. And I always used to get upset at him. We, had, we kind of became very close friends later on when I was in high school, just because I spent so much time with him. <laughs> <laughs> so I used to, you know, openly get upset that, hey, like, let me just I can play faster if, if you just let me memorize. And he would say, no, you gotta practice your scales. You gotta get get your fundamental basics to be the best because once you have those, you're set in life. You'll always know how to play the piano. If you can read the notes, you can always, you can memorize one sheet of music and then you'll never know what to do when something new comes in front of you. And I think that's a lot like cooking where you need that repetition and you need to understand the fundamental basics of whatever it is that you're doing. Because nowadays, when I look at a recipe, I'm not really looking at how many ounces or how many grams of a specific ingredient. I just kind of scan the ingredients, scan the method maybe, and then I can make my own estimate on what I need to do for that dish to come out well. And the first time you make a dish, it'll come out okay the second time you make it it'll come out a little better a little bit better the next time a little bit better the next time and it, you just keep getting better and it's the same thing with music and the piano and just about anything if, if you say sports or whatever it is the more that you practice the more time that you spent doing something you're going to eventually get to a point where you're great at it and even once you're great at it you can still do better So I would definitely say that those were probably the similarities. And as a chef now, I definitely respect the musicians themselves. If you look at Beethoven, I always tell my staff the story about Beethoven and the fact that this guy was deaf. And I'll I'll play like his uh, symphonies when um, you know when we're in the kitchen sometimes and I'm t- telling a cook about him it's like listen to this this is this is masterful it's phenomenal the guy did it without even being able to really hear what he was doing but he was just so masterful at it and I think music is a creative expression it's something that you know it's new every time if you're making something you know, if you're, if you're giving a performance, if you give a concert in New York, your concert will be slightly different than the concert you give in Boston. And the concert, you know, it's, it's, it's different every time you're physically playing something. And if you're creating something, that's also you're expressing your emotion onto the page when you're writing music. So I think it's there's definitely very similar aspects of that in cooking as well. Every single night you're cooking the, maybe the same dish you're giving the same concert, but it's still going to be a little different. The guest, it's subjective to the guest. It's subjective to the listener. So what the guest eats, my team might think it's really great one day, and might think it's bad the next day. Same thing with the person listening to the music. You might think it's great. Another person might think it's terrible. It's all subjective. So I definitely think that there's there's uh, parallels to it. There's there's similarities to it.
0: The creative expression that you talk about. Actually, I try to cook once a week or once in two weeks. The, the creative expression, because I do uh, art and I love uh, creating stuff on the white canvas. So whenever I'm trying to cook, I tend to just um, create something. I'm looking for, hey, what if I put this, this and this uh, instead of for following a formula? You know, what if, what what's going to come out? That, that mysterious aspect of it. Uh, I love that part of it, like the creative expression. But I'm sure uh, as a Michelin star uh, chef on a restaurant, you you might not have the leeway to experiment. Uh, Since we were on the topic, I was going to ask you later, but maybe could you expand on how do you experiment with the creative expression in the food that you prepare? Because at the same time, you have to maintain the quality, you have to maintain the um, expectations of the people and all that. How do you manage that while also experimenting?
1: Yeah, that's, uh, it's, a, it's kind of, it's pretty interesting because I, with Janoon, we were, I was given a blank canvas, kind of how you say when you're, when you're drawing, I was given a blank canvas in that I was given complete creative control of the menu and of what we do and how we do it. And, I think that's one of the important things that I learned from my father was if you're gonna push the boundaries, which my father has tried to do with Indian cuisine his whole life, uh, you have to be bold and you have to take chances and take risks. Sometimes they'll pay off and you'll be very satisfied. Sometimes it won't pay off. And when it doesn't pay off, you should learn from that, learn from the mistake, like you said, you cook and sometimes you experiment and you put three ingredients in without looking at the recipe and say, what if this works? If it doesn't work, you learn from it. You yeah. know, if cinnamon, if you put too much nutmeg or too much green cardamom, you realize, oh, nutmeg is a very strong spice. Star needs is a very strong spice. I shouldn't put that much of it. You know, it happens to everyone. I've learned the same way. So, you know, when it comes to creative expression, we were lucky because at Janoon, we were given a chef's tasting menu. So we had our regular standard three, three course menu, prefix menu, a la carte menu, or, you know, whatever the menu was. So some of the classics that we had, like your Murgh Lababdar, your Dal Turka and Dal those things were staying on the menu no matter what. But on the tasting menu, I used to get basically 10 dishes or so that I could play with and that I could change around. Which is great, and then on the regular menu because we were trying to be more seasonally driven and use the best purveyors and think outside the box, not be like every other Indian restaurant that you know just serves a curry in a bowl and calls it a day, or just serves a chicken tikka on a plate and with onions and mint chutney. You know you can get that everywhere you go. You know a seekaab with onions and green chutney that's nothing new. It's been done for hundreds of years, thousands yes. of years. So, you know, if apples were in season in New York City, you know, the fall season has great apples and great pears. So we would do an apple chutney, for instance, or during the spring and summer when berries are in full season, we would do something with berries, a berry chutney that might go with, uh, you know, a sea kebab, you know, that you wouldn't normally think those two things will work or that you've even maybe tried that. But those are the sort of things that we used to always try. And I was lucky that I got those opportunities. So I always kind of played around with different techniques, meaning, you know, using a Japanese technique on an Indian dish, for example. Mm -hmm. Like uh, our tuna, we did a tuna pani puri, which is goga But instead of the traditional aloo stuffing, Mm -hmm. we did tuna Rich chat masala, raw tuna, stuffed in it, and instead of your regular uh, mint, cilantro, tamarind water mm-hmm. that you green chili you know water that you put and you eat, we mm-hmm. made a cilantro based dashi, which is from kombu, which is you know, uh, a Japanese ingredient that they that they use and it's very important for for their cuisine if you are making you know omakasi or anything like that so you know we kind of played around with it a couple of times and we saw that wow this is giving us a totally different experience it's nostalgic in a way because the whole process of punching a cracker and filling the cracker with water the pan the puff the pani puri puff and eating it that whole experience is there and then once you bite into it it bursts with the water and everything in your mouth but this time you're getting a different sense of umami and you're getting that chopped masala with the tuna. And it's just a totally different experience. You know, we would add some chopped onions, chopped tomatoes in there. So you're just getting something that you wouldn't be able to get in any other restaurant, most likely in the country or in the world. So those are the sort of things that, you know, we got to really play with and that and how we got to create but on the flip side, we definitely saw that we had a lot of experiments that didn't go well. Mm-hmm. And every time for every good dish, you get a dish that maybe doesn't work out as well. I have a whole notebook filled <laughs> with those dishes, uh, but you, know, you learn from them. And sometimes those failures help you open the door for a greater success.
0: Yeah. I mean, talking, yeah, definitely. Uh, experimentation is a key ingredient to actually creating something new, right? If you're just following, like you said, the same old formula from 100 years ago, there's no experimentation. (laughs) It's just a safe approach. You'll never make anything new. Um, Just to touch on, since you brought it up, uh, the idea of um, taking something from a different cuisine or a different practice, like a Japanese art, uh, do you have anything to share around, like? I believe, I mean, Indian cuisine itself is so wide, vast, like ranging things that people make across India, but there's also so much that could be incorporated like you just did with the, um, with the Golgopas. Um, did you, number one, like did you actually learn, uh, like some specific techniques in the Japanese culinary art that you try to adopt, um, in, in Junoon? And, um, is that is that a common practice, or is it something that not not widely adopted by you know Indian restaurants across the world?
1: So I yes for Japanese cuisine I was able to get a culinary scholarship actually in twenty nineteen uh, through this nonprofit organization called the Gohan Society. Mm-hmm. So each year they take applications and they'll pick about five to six chefs and you travel to Japan. And you travel through different cities. They basically set it up, the board of directors. There's some phenomenal chefs and tours that are on the board. They will travel with you, three, four of them, with the five chefs. And you go from city to city, four or five different cities, and experience the culture. And then you actually do work for a few days in a restaurant in Kanazawa. So each chef is in a different restaurant and you're learning, you know, in whichever kitchen that you're in. So I was able to spend four days there. So, you know, got to really see the different kinds of fishes that they use and some of the techniques that they use for that. Uh, The dashi was one of those uh, uh, recipes that I had known about, that I had read about, that I knew theoretically, but I really had never thought much about it in practical use. Like, how would I actually use it in my kitchen? So it really did become a thing where I, I'm the kind of learner that when I see something, that's the best way that I can learn it. I know that some people are more uh, auditory learners, or you know, do a different methods, you know, reading and whatnot. So for me, it's whenever I travel to a different city or anything like that, that's when I usually soak in the culture and I really can figure out what I can do. In an Indian sense, through the lens of an Indian chef. So I would say that we were, yes, we were given the opportunity that hey, if you if you have a different technique and you want to try to implement it into into our menu, you're free to do that. But we have to also make sure that we stay true to the cuisine mm-hmm. and that we're not bastardizing the cuisine. And you know that's always a fine line. You know you want to make sure that you're still maintaining the integrity but you're also doing something refreshing and new. So, yeah, I mean, with that, you know, like with the, like uh, let's say for Kitchi, uh I, I thought of a dish where, uh, and it was, you know, through, through kind of traveling and whatnot that I, I was, I think, in Indonesia. And while I was in Indonesia, I was cooking there for a few days. And one of the places we tried, they took a very traditional rice dish. I, I'm not really remembering the name right now, but on, on top of the rice dish, they shaved truffles on it. And when I asked the chef that I was with, hey, like, you know, is this, is this how they usually present it? Is this how they usually serve it at home? He was like, no, this is, you know, this is more of a a little upscale and whatnot, but the flavors, it really matches. And the way he made the rice was very traditional and it was mind-blowing. I was I was really really impressed with it, and in my mind immediately I thought of well why can't I do pizzelles like that? <laughs> and the funny thing was when I returned from Indonesia, uh, we did an event in Italy, <laughs> which is those those the big uh, stores. I don't, I'm not sure if you've heard of Italy, so they have like multiple restaurants inside of it. So I was doing an event with one of the restaurants there. And one of the dishes they gave me was just a bowl of plain risotto with just a lot of, sh- a mountain of shaved truffles. And I was like, well, this if this is just in my face, now I have to experiment trying to get back to the kitchen. I've seen risotto and truffles. Obviously I've eaten that a, you know, multiple times in my life, but the fact that it happened within a few weeks of, of seeing this Indonesian dish uh, also have truffles on it. I'm gonna try my own version. So we get, went back to the kitchen, we made kichidi, the traditional way, the way that my parents used to make it for me growing up as a child. And we got, you know, a ball of burgundy truff, white burgundy truffles and uh, shaved it. And it was just mind-blowing. And ever since, that's been on our tasting menu.
0: Wow, uh, it's mouth-watering. <laughs> um, I mean... It just sounds, yeah, it sounds so good. And I I love the the attitude of experimenting and taking from different cultures. And it's just phenomenal.
1: Yeah, no, just to add, because I do, you mentioned also like, you know, is it okay, you know, for for chefs to do something like that, you know, for Indian chefs? uh, You know, I definitely think that if you look in the last, at the turn of the century, probably, and more so the last 10 years, you would definitely see, I think more chefs have, been experimenting i think they feel more freedom to do it i think that this new age of social media has kind of opened the floodgates where you can now you know turn on instagram and you can see what you know a chef across the world is doing Mm. and you know you can get more uh motivation or more uh, influence you know from Seeing all these different things, the inspiration can come from a myriad of ways. So I definitely think that Indian cuisine, especially, has had so many other uh, parts of the world kind of come to the country and influence our cuisine. Whether it was the Portuguese coming to Goa and you know introducing the you know what we know as vindaloo today came from the Portuguese. And when you look at, you know, the, yeah, and you look at, you know, North Indian and, and how much the British played a role in, in, in North Indian cooking. So I definitely think that you can see different and obviously the Middle East and, you know, but that's thousands of years and hundreds of years, you know, whether it's the tandoors and the spices and things like that. You know, those come from a little west of India when you're looking at the map. So there's definitely been a lot of influences on our cuisine. So that's why I always kind of laugh when you hear people saying that, oh, you know, Janoon's food. You guys aren't authentic. You guys aren't traditional. Uh, I'm like, all right, well, what do you, you know, like? I don't really know what you guys want. You know, there's there's thousands of restaurants that do butter chicken and dal makhani and tagine. If you want that, you know, you can get it anywhere. You don't need to come here. But I want to kind of take influences from around the world and. Re put it back into our cuisine in it through a different lens and through a more modern technique, and and you know, using those uh, those more newer you know, the newer technologies of the world and whatnot to kind of enhance the experience that you get. Because I do think that when you're dining at our restaurant, I want it to be an experience for the guest, mm-hmm. not just it's a meal I pay and I eat.
0: Yeah, so. yeah, and yeah, talking of your taking on that leadership. Within Junoon, and sort of saying, you know, I'm going to do it slightly differently, but I know I'm going to be careful about it. But like, I believe you had gone all the way from like line lead and whatnot to second sous chef to sous chef to executive chef now. But then, as you became the executive chef, I believe uh, three three years ago maybe, Junoon already had a reputation, and it was already a well-established, uh, high-profile, Michelin star restaurant, right? And th- did that uh, create any pressure on you? I mean, you took it on very early, I believe. And like, was there a pressure on you to actually deliver and keep up? And how did you handle that pressure?
1: Yeah, no, there's 100%. There was a lot of pressure. Uh, I was 23 years old when I took it over. So I was definitely on the younger side. And being that young, obviously, I had a tip on my shoulder that I got to prove myself, that I don't want to be that guy that takes it over and in his first year, you know, screws, screws the legacy up. Uh, because we, at that point, being six years in a row having the Michelin was no small feat, uh, you know, for, especially for Indian cuisine in, in New York City to survive that long uh, was, was definitely unprecedented. So with yeah, it was there was there was a lot of pressure, and the way to kind of cope with it. Looking back on it, I probably didn't do the best job of coping with the pressure. To be honest, uh, looking looking back on it, and and, and now what I would definitely say is that I'm more organized now. I'm I'm more so focused on my tasks at hand but then always thinking big pictures so I'm, I'm a big proponent of writing the thoughts down organizing your thoughts on a piece of paper more so than even on my laptop because I do feel that having that pen in your hand and really kind of controlling what you're writing on mm. the page if you have to draw a diagram whatever it is it's better that you have that kind of personal connection versus yep. putting it on a laptop so, you know, I started doing that definitely way more, setting my goals in line of today's my daily goals, Then I have the weekly goals, monthly, you know, mid, you know, three months away, whatever. And then yearly goals. And I'm not afraid anymore of having that daily list not being completed in one day. And being able to prioritize, okay, this is what is the most important, start that, I got to actually get that done today. But these three other things, yeah, that can go on tomorrow's list. It's okay. It's okay to be vulnerable, but to try and take on everything and to be solid, because mm-hmm. when once you become the head chef, you're not even necessarily cooking as much as you are a problem solver. There's just so many problems that, come to a restaurant on a day-to-day basis, Mm -hmm. it's a 24-7 job, even if your restaurant is closed twice a week, on those two days you're in charge of that restaurant and, and you're the best, there's going to be things that you have to get done. There's going to be issues whether it's a vendor not being able to deliver your produce and your meats, Another vendor can't deliver the fish or the refrigerator broke and we need to call someone because things are starting to spoil or One of the other machines are broken. My sous vide machine broke or one of the tandoor plates broke and the tandoor is not working. That's happened several times. We're on a Friday night service. The tandoor plate Mm -hmm. broke and we had to do 300 guests on one tandoor, making both breads and kebabs. So there's definitely been intense, intense problems that you have to kind of on the fly adapt. So adaptability is definitely another thing that's very big. And I would say finding a hobby or two outside of your work is also very important. You might not have hours and hours to spend on that hobby, but if if it's something that gives you rest and relaxation of your mind and or your body, it's a good thing, you know? So for me, it's uh, sports that I love. So catching the end of a Yankees game, it's important to me or catching a mixed game, things like that, or going out to another restaurant and dining, you know, finding one day a week to do something like that, where I can go eat, meet a friend or spend some time with my family, whatever it is, those things were very important to me. And those are things that will definitely help cope with the pressures that you find, because pressure will be there today, it's going to be there tomorrow. And the pressure is there 365 days a year. You know, it's just that's just that's the nature of the beast. So you're never going to be able to stop the pressure, it's always going to be there, but you can find ways to divert it into something positive in your life. So that's something that I definitely try to do. I know other people do meditation or they do yoga in the morning. You know, there's definitely other things maybe read a book uh yeah there's there's a myriad of things that you could do but i definitely think finding an hour or so either every day or having one day off or two days off in a week where you can really rest is very important and then the other thing would just be making sure you're organized If you're having a conversation, whenever I used to go to a meeting or have a conversation with someone, I would always bring my notepad with me, take notes on it, just so that I remember. Because you might remember what you said to somebody. 10 minutes from now, you'll remember. One hour from now, you'll remember. But six months from now, when you have to remember what he said, there's no chance. And for me, I can barely remember what I had for breakfast. So (laughs) it's definitely twice as important.
0: You mentioned uh, taking notes and writing uh, or the act of actually putting pen to paper is, is something that is sort of a rarity nowadays, right? <laughs> With everything on Insta and <laughs> um But that, that sort of gives me perspective of how you think about things. I think you, you want that hands-on, that the personal touch in what you do. And uh, writing on a paper is something that you prefer rather than, of course, could do it on a phone, you could do it on the laptop. Um, That personal touch, I think, is a pretty crucial ingredient of being a good chef, I would think. (laughs) Um, And you also talked about, um, yeah, like, I think just being... um, a problem solver, which I never really thought of a chef as a problem solver, but that's really unique perspective. Uh, I can only imagine, right? I mean, there's so many things that could go wrong and um, like, how do you handle this uncertainty?
1: Uh, another example, no, but to handle the uncertainty, uh, but before I talk about that, the another example would be that during restaurant week, which is the busy one of the busiest times of the year, where you're doing about 250 to 300 guests a night, easily. We had uh, in our basement, we had two floors in the restaurant. So the downstairs, all the pipes basically from the upstairs, including the bathrooms and whatnot, all went to the downstairs. And we had our sump pump down there. So all the toilets, all the water, everything that's in any drain would go over there. So our Mm -hmm. restaurant was so big that we had two sump pumps and both were needed in order for the water level to always stay down from the, because you had the dish machine running. So we would have a glass wash, one for glasses, another dish machine for plates and silverware. And then we had another dish machine in the bar that did their cocktail glasses. So that's constantly running. So that's a lot of water right there. Then you have Mm -hmm. all the employees washing their hands all night there's water running there and then of course you have the bathroom people are using it all night that's 300 guests using the bathroom over the course of you know six hours so the sun pumps broke at around eight o'clock p.m on a Friday Saturday night where the dancers started flooding it started coming over the drains so now I have a full house they can't use the bathroom because if they use the bathroom the the toilet water starts to rise because it's not going down anymore. So right at that time we had to figure out, okay, how do we manage to A, above all, give the guests a satisfactory experience? It's a lot of first time diners that come for restaurant week. So they've never eaten at Janoon. So how do we make sure that they're having a good time? Plus they're having a safe time, that things are being, you know, everything is safe. And then how do I manage to allow my staff to actually work? Because we are running out of plates. We're running, we shut off the dish machine for a little while while they were trying to fix it. But they said, you can't fix it. You're going to have to call a company. They'll come overnight and they're going to have to drain everything and all this, just a, just a total a six hour to eight hour process overnight. We can't do anything about it right now at 8 p.m. on a Saturday night. So, you know, I, I had to gather my dishwasher and whatnot and ask them, listen, we can't run the machine. You're going to have to, we'll take like a bucket of water and we'll, you know, we'll wash a plate like that the old fashioned way. And in the meantime, maybe once an hour, we can run the machine once the levels start going down and, uh, you know, we turned off the excess, mm-hmm. you know, the water for scrubbing and soap and whatnot because we we used to clean like almost every hour in the kitchen scrub everything down mop and whatnot (laughs) so we said okay hold off on the mopping hold off on all these other things we'll wait until after the guests leave and then we're going to do everything so it's crazy you know in a frantic you know 8 p.m you got you got a flooded basement what are you going to do
0: no it's 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 just a follow-up on that like how, how do you prepare for something like this? Like, uh, I mean, as a, as the team lead or this, you know, leading everybody, how do you prepare for something like this? Right, you can't, right? I mean, there's, uh, and then if you're not really necessarily prepared, but how do you handle the situation? Like, are you like the commander in chief sort of like, Hey, this is what we're going to do X, Y, Z this, how we're going to, and you have, of course, the guests and you need to make sure that they're happy. It's not just about managing the chaos,
1: uh, yeah, I never, I tried my best not to lead in a militaristic way whenever I, you know, whenever those decisions had to be made. Uh, I always tried to be as transparent as possible for my staff, because I think mm-hmm. if I, I'm a human being on my staff, they're humans. So if I can come to you on a human level and be like, hey, listen, this is the situation, you know, X, Y, and Z is going wrong. I'm gonna need you to pivot. I know that this isn't maybe your job or this isn't what you signed up for, but and you know I know you have whatever issues going on in your life. But I'm gonna need you to do something different or do you know uh, handle this situation this way rather than this way. So I always try to present the facts. Let them know that I'm coming to you on on a human level, and you know if I can help, hands on wise. And, and do it myself, I will do that. But I never want to compromise the product also and the quality. So if, if me having to help somebody compromises the guest experience, I can't do it. That person will have to do it. They'll have to understand and you know, please you know, do it. We can talk about it later, but let's just get it done right now. Because during that time frame of 6 p.m. to 10 p.m. or 11 or however long you're open for, The guest is the most important thing, the way that we pay our bills, the way that we pay the vendors, the way that we pay our guests, uh, not our guests, but our our staff, feed families is the money that the guests are giving us. So if they're having a cruddy time Mm -hmm. and a crappy time, then guess what? You know, we're going to have to shutter the doors. So let's, you know, let's get the job done, whatever it takes to get it done, let's do it. And then we will reflect on it after it's over. Once the last guest is left and we've locked the door, we can sit, we can discuss, and we can learn from it. Because, you know, like you said, you cannot, uh, you there's no chance you can prepare for these kinds of catastrophes when it happens, but experience and having that experience and the more experience you have, you can then pull from those memories and be like, okay, well, something similar has happened. This is what we can do. And me, myself, I don't ever really take too many major decisions just by myself. I always like to pick the brains of those around me. You know, I think one of the most important things uh, or pieces of you know, uh, reading material I've ever read was that um, you, know, you never wanna be the smartest guy in the room if you're a leader. Yeah. You want to, you want to have those around you that are smarter than you. You should have basic knowledge of everything that these guys are talking about and you should know, you know, and be able to hold your own, but people have their expertise in their different fields, use that knowledge and then make the best decision you can possibly make. And the people that work under you, if you are including them in the conversations, they will take ownership themselves and they will do a better job in turn. That's what I've seen at least, in you know, yeah, in,
0: yeah. in my career. Yeah, no, that's um, absolutely. I think that applies to any leadership. Like, try to be transparent, involve the team members, and um, really treat them as humans, like you talked about. Like, they're people too, and you're people too. And when you're authentic and uh, real, I think people can relate to that much better. Um, talking of also the book you said like you've read something about how you know you want to be you don't want to be the smartest person in the room uh, are you I came across this book and I thought I'll just mention it because we are talking about you know chaos in the kitchen are you the devil in the kitchen or are you not really like you know uh, I, I don't know if you heard this book <laughs> you know which book I'm talking about I guess uh, right um, Mario Pierre white uh, wrote this book called *The Devil in the Kitchen*.
1: Definitely times that you have to be, you know, when you look at what what chef, you know, uh, Marco Pierre White was able to do, you know, being the youngest, you know, British chef to obtain three Michelin. At you know, and you see the people that work under him. Gordon Ramsay was one of them. Uh, there's a great documentary. You can find it on YouTube. I think it's a two-hour documentary. It was shot. I forget. Actually, no, it's not Marco Pierwhite. I'm, I'm confusing it. It's Gordon Ramsay, but it's Gordon Ramsay trying to get his third Michelin and, he, and Marco White is part of that document. It's about two hours long. It is phenomenal because this is Gordon Ramsay before he became, you know, Hell's Kitchen and all this stuff. He had just gone to Michelin and he had just opened his new restaurant. Yeah, this is like 98, 97, something like that. It is so fascinating. But even with Marco White, it's the same thing where these guys to get to that level of perfection you have to be so demanding of the people around you because the standard is just so high you you can't allow even one plate one component one garnish to be out of place when you are aiming for that kind of perfection when you are going for a three michelin you know we had one michelin and the pressure was so you know was was so crazy i can only you know I think I literally have a heart attack trying to get through. I'm not even kidding. Like, I think my heart can, like, burst through through my, you know, through my chest. You know, there's definitely times where I, I, I get upset at my staff. And yes, I, I definitely do yell because I get frustrated when I see others that, A, I, hired, I hire certain people that I see potential in, first and foremost. So I never hire someone if I don't think that they are capable of something that they can do. So just in that, I get upset when they fall below that line, below that standard. And, you know, there's these two mentalities when you talk about the kitchen, and I guess it can can relate to just about anything. There's the cook mentality and there's the chef's mentality. The cook mentality is you're going to come in, you're going to just do your Whatever your assignment is, your job, that's it. The recipe is that. I'm going to just do the recipe. That's it. You know, even at home, I'm not going to experiment. I'm just going to do what I know, what I'm comfortable with, and I'm going to skate by. Just doing bare minimum. I'll get my paycheck. I'll leave. And and there's great cooks like that. And you need those in your kitchen for sure because you don't want, you know, too many principals, too many teachers, not enough students, right? Something like that. So the same thing uh, so the chef's mentality is essentially that the chef will go beyond what his job requirement is or her job requirement is they will do whatever it takes after you get your job done you go and help the next person you help the next person and you know you come in early you leave late those are that's the chef mentality because you're the captain of the chef and, and this is the mentality I, I do not have when I first started in the, in the restaurant. I had the cook mentality. And it wasn't until I was 21 years old or 22 years old. Like, yeah, I was 20, 21 when I really started seeing it for like, okay, I got to step up. I got to stop this doing the bare minimum. If I want to make this a career, I've got to go that extra mile because no one's going to want to teach someone if they don't deserve it. It, right like if i'm working busting my butt and someone next to me is not doing yep. their job or they're doing the bare minimum a it's bad for morale and b i'm not going to want to you know work with that person i'm not going to want to teach that person um so, so it, it just causes it just becomes a cancer in the in, in the workplace you know when, when when that kind of thing happens so you know with Marco Pierre White and and being the devil in the kitchen yeah i do push people because I do expect something great out of them if I've hired them and we have guests that are spending their hard-earned money. It's one of the most expensive Indian restaurants in the country and there's a lot of special occasions usually that these guests come for, whether it's a birthday, graduation, anniversary, whatever the case is. So if I am not providing them the best possible experience, then we have failed to a certain degree. And if my cooks or staff or whoever don't care about that, the fact that we're not doing a good job or they themselves aren't holding themselves to a higher standard, that bothers me. And if they make the same mistake over and over again, that's when I really lose it. Because I'm okay with you making a mistake once, maybe even twice, but learn from that mistake and don't make it again. And when someone keeps repeating it, that always gets me because that means that they don't care
0: enough to learn from it. Yeah. I just love the way you uh, talked about the chef versus the cook mentality and the mindset and both are important, but at the same time, um, uh, I think it's also important to have that bigger picture. I'm not just here to do a job, but also to really achieve the end outcome, which is to make the guests happy. And uh, I think that ownership and accountability, it's amazing. The way you put it, chef mentality. versus. I think uh, one of the uh, guys I respect a lot in the venture capital industry is Paul Graham. Uh, he talks about the maker's schedule versus the manager's schedule. think there is somebody who is just making things versus somebody who is actually looking at the big picture and making sure, uh, you know, the vision is. Um, actually, you, I w- I looked at something. Maybe correct me if I'm wrong, but I saw something around like when you talk about, you know, mentors like. Mario, Pierre White, and Gordon Ramsey and others. Uh, I looked at something that you had posted maybe on your Instagram, where you talk about, uh, thank you, Sanjeev Kapoor for being so tough on me. Do you, do you, do you recall what that was or what, the, what Sanjeev Kapoor, the famous Indian chef, uh, told you about and why was he tough on you? What was the lessons from that? Oh
1: yeah, that's, that's very great. I, I can see you definitely did the research, that's, that's fantastic. <laughs> Oh, by the way, I do. So the Gordon Ramsay, that documentary on YouTube, I think it's called Boiling Point. Uh, I'm remembering now. So mm. I definitely would recommend... Boiling to, Point. Yeah, anyone that's a awesome. fan of his. Put it in the show notes, thanks. Yeah, if you're a fan of restaurants and you want to see what a, what a real chef is, you know, has to do, it inspires me to this day. Probably once every three months or four months, I actually will sit and watch it, you know, just to get my juices flowing again. <laughs> Um, but, but going back to the question, uh, so Sanjeev Kapoor, um, with my father being in the industry, it actually turned out to be that they were friends from school and kind of, you know, uh, knew each other and were, and were friends for a while. So they're family friends. So I've kind of known him since I was young, you know, when his family came and visited America, they would stay at our house. And likewise, when we went to Mumbai, we would stay with them. And he's very down to earth and humble. He's a phenomenal. He would cook, you know, for us all the time, and he was, you know, just amazing, and just a really good person overall. Uh, but when I entered the industry, our relationship definitely changed a little bit. Where it was definitely still, he's my uncle, and you know, the respect. But he definitely kicked my butt in terms of. When we went to dinner, I remember this is probably 2013, 2014 when I or like even before that I was a line cook and I'm you know starting to learn that we he would literally quiz me on like the stuff we were on the food that we were eating. So we went to a Chinese restaurant and we were eating and in the middle of the meal he would ask me like what's this cut of meat? Is it lime loin or is it you know different? Is it is it pork belly? You know what is it? So, you know, he would ask me those sorts of questions. And then he would ask me, like, what books are you reading? And then he would give me a list of like, okay, these are the books that you need to read. You know, this is, you know, giving me suggestions. And I always, and I really appreciated that because, and he was definitely, even to this day, when he comes to the restaurant, I will always try to give him dishes that I'm working on. And he will always give me, feedback that is honest and truthful from his heart. Uh, most of the time it's critical. It's, it, you know, there's a lot of criticism. And as a chef, when you're getting criticized, when you get criticized from a guest, you might not think it, but for chef, we think about that criticism all day and all night. It festers in your brain. Whenever you, whenever I start, I don't read Yelp reviews anymore. I don't read these kinds of reviews because my blood starts boiling. You start getting anxiety, you start, you know, you get upset and angry because you're spending so many hours, you're spending 16 hours, and you don't know whether that guest mm-hmm. is just is spewing hate because they, you know, they didn't get a free entree, or maybe the staff was you know, mm-hmm. hypothetically rude to them, or you or they had a bad day, or they got into a fight with their family, maybe and You know, they came to, there's a myriad of things that could happen, and the food could have been, you know, uh, not too good that day. But me as a chef, when I am working, I taste everything that leaves the kitchen and I approve of it. I literally have plastic spoons. I go through like 150, 200 spoons a night, and, you know, usually leave the restaurant full just based off of tasting every single thing that comes out of the kitchen. So, you know, when someone says something critical, it hurts. And that in his case, he didn't have to do that, you know, for me, he, he could have easily just, you know, been like, you know, yeah, your food's good, you know, you're okay. But he's always pushing me. And I know that when I'm going to meet him the next time, that there's going to be questions that he's going to ask. And, you know, i better come prepared. And, you know, I always keep that in the back <laughs> of my mind that this is he's <laughs> a fantastic chef and you can see why he's such a fantastic chef and such a celebrated chef because he knows literally just about everything you know he knows every book that's being written right now and he's read them to what every chef is doing in the world and he's eaten across the globe and he himself cooks all the time that food is his life and it really is amazing to see that and i can't say that for every celebrity chef to be honest i think nowadays unfortunately with social media and whatnot that chefs are kind of just looking for fame and you know they want to be you know whatever they don't want to really be in the kitchen cooking which is unfortunate but you can tell with him that it, it comes from a good place and he pushes me he kicks my ass a lot and so i you know i definitely appreciate it <laughs> One thing, one thing to add to that, actually,
0: yeah.
1: I'll, I'll never forget, was when he asked me about a book in particular, I, I mentioned that, yeah, I have it, uh, you know, at home, I ordered it and I, I, it's, it's at home. And I'll never forget him saying, yeah, you know, you should, instead of it being at home, you should open it and actually read it rather than just owning it. And I'll never forget that, you know, that he that said that. And, it, you know, it was it was definitely eye-opening for me.
0: Yeah, I think you, we all need the truth tellers in our life too. Uh, can you share a little bit about your uh, next set of ventures? What's happening, Junoon Social, is that a new initiative?
1: Yes, yeah, so, so we have a lot of things in the works actually right now, which I'm very, very excited for. So actually we are relocated Janoon itself. So the restaurant itself, we we are moving and in the process of moving. And we are very lucky that we found a beautiful restaurant literally right down the street from us. So, and it's, it's a smaller location which kind of fits what we're gonna be doing in this next decade. You know, Janoon just turned 10 years old in 2020 of December. So that decade is kind of, you know, is over and behind us. And now it's kind of time to pivot and and look to the future. And one of those projects, just after we open this Janoon, will be Janoon Social, which is a fine, fast, casual concept. Fine, fast, casual, meaning that you'll get that Janoon experience, those recipes, those curries, the flavors, you're still gonna get that, but you can get it within ninety seconds to two minutes of your order when you are physically ordering. Wow. So, yeah, it's a QSR essentially, a quick serve restaurant. Wow. And we will be doing, you know, I, I you know, unfortunately, we haven't really seen yet um, an Indian concept that that's been able to go national in terms of fine, fast, casual. So our goal is definitely hitting the Northeast first and then from there expanding. Uh, So, you know, the infrastructure is very important. The first kind of what the feedback is, and we're going to learn from that. And we're going to try to expand based on if our clients are in fact happy with our product. But I do think they will be. You know we we have a great team and, and besides the food part we're going to have a great uh, drinks menu as well bottles cocktails and mocktails some desserts on the fly uh, you know spice jar, spice blends and spice jars that you can buy there so actually it's pretty interesting because at this new Janoon that we are opening which is going to be opening soon. We're doing a little marketplace in the front of the restaurant. Mm-hmm. So where the bar is, when you enter, there will be bottled cocktails and mocktails, low alcohol, no alcohol drinks. There will be spice blends that you can buy in jars. There will be pastries and cakes and chocolate that you can buy, like boxes of chocolate and whatnot. There will be little grab and go sandwiches that you can get and whatnot. Uh, and, you know, a couple more things, but I can't really give all the details yet. You'll have to stay tuned for that. But yeah. for the most part, we're going to be, we're going to be testing out a lot of these, a lot of our Genude social items here at Genude First. Use the marketplace, you know, different teas, different coffees, all these, and you know, I kind of make it like a little cafe in a way. And start the and then implement what we learn from here into Junune Social, which will definitely be a, a larger menu format and a bigger experience in terms of a lot of curries and biryani's and, and you know cotty rolls and, and muff you know, grab and go pav bhaji and, and and different things. And some of those things you'll be able to find at the marketplace, some of those things you'll actually be able to find on our tasting menu because they actually have started on the chef tasting venue and they've ended up going into the fast casual because they were such interesting concepts. So all these things are kind of in the works right now. And within the next month or so, Janoon will be opening. And then which is April of 2021 to May 2021. That's that's our launch date. And then after that we're going to move towards Janoon Social and Hopefully by end of 2021, 2022, we'll be having more news on that.
0: I love the concept. Can't wait. (laughs) You talked briefly about a couple of times, like, you know, a documentary or a book. uh, uh, You've recommended The Boiling Point as one of them. Are there any particular books that you've learned from or gifted to friends and family that you recommend?
1: Yeah, recently I reread Setting the Table by Danny Byer. So I'm not sure if you're familiar with Danny Meyer. Yeah, Union Square Hospitality Group. So Shake Shack and uh, the original 11 Madison Park and Gramercy Tavern, Union Square Cafe. You know, he's he's a legend. Um, So I would definitely say his book, Setting the Table, is up there as my favorite all-time book for sure. There's just so many, not only Mm hospitality-related stories and quotes and lessons in there, it's, it's so good for any business person, any entrepreneur that wants to start a business and confident, or maybe wants to hear not just the X's and O's or the, you know, the, the, this is more so on the personality and human side of it, that he's explaining how he was able, you know, to work with all these different personalities and when's the right time to expand the business. And, and there's just so many great, lines uh, there's one that i really love uh where he he keeps on saying whelmers in quotations so whelmers are like overwhelm and underwhelm or oh, for your yeah. staff that they are comfortable and it sends a message to the rest of the staff and the guests that average is acceptable and that is the most dangerous person that you can hire in your restaurant. Not an under not an underachiever or an overachiever, but just that average person that just does enough to get by, and I thought that was so profound. Uh. And he has multiple so many things that he says in the book that I just can't you know, uh, I, it would take another hour for me to go over.
0: That's perfect. Yeah, Welmers. I've never heard that term Welmers, and you're so right. And in in the valley, Steve Jobs used to talk about. You know, uh, you need to hire A players. If you hire B players, they'll hire C players. So I guess, um, you know, you you hire an average person, they'll probably just <laughs> downhill all the way from there.
1: Yeah, that, another thing he says, I remember he, he mentions like, uh, you know, he says when employees don't work out, it's because of their attitude of, it's usually because of the attitude of I won't rather than I can't. So I always think that that's a very interesting kind of way to look at it uh, when it comes to that. You know, it's so much in the mind of how do you get a person to understand what your vision is. Uh, uh, The the last thing that I'm just going to say is uh, it's a very famous story, It's the salt shaker story that he says. Uh, And when he opened his first restaurant, he was running around and, uh, you know, he Kept and he, you know, told his mentor that, hey, like I, I can't, you know, get my staff to buy into this, you know, into what I'm doing and what I'm training them and whatever. And the mentor basically kept moving the salt shaker, uh, away from the place that it was positioned on the table. And Danny Meyer kept on picking up the salt shaker and putting it back in its place. So then Danny Meyer asked him, like, why, why do you keep on, you know, moving the salt shaker? He said, the salt shaker is basically your staff. They're going to keep moving the salt shaker out of place. It is your job, no matter how many times that salt shaker moves, to put the salt shaker back in its place, exactly where it is. And if you do that enough times, they themselves will put the salt shaker back in its original place. So, I mean, there's just so many stories like that, that that it really resonated with me. And I don't think it's just for hospitality. I think it's for life in general.
0: Yeah, I can take a lesson away from that to my own work that I do as a product manager. I can see that totally. <laughs> um, just one, a couple of other questions. One is, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, love it, I love it, go ahead.
1: The last one, change works only when people believe it is happening for them, not to them. So that's just another little you know, one-liner that I thought was very interesting.
0: Change, uh, make them feel that change is happening for them not to them wonderful so on that note of the short lines or quotes that really stick with you if you could write a message or something uh, on a full moon that the whole world can see what would you want to convey to the world
1: so i would i would probably keep it short and simple i would say respect others the way you want to be respected
0: nice way to uh, bring this to close i was going to ask you one last question but i think you kind of answered it with this particular thing that you just said
1: Uh, thank you -hmm. so much you know for for having me it it really was a pleasure to talk with you Uh, you'll have to come visit when we open
0: perfect nice way to close it thanks so much Akshay. i really wish you all the best with uh, all the new projects that you're cooking up